The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Good evening, my friends. I speak to you tonight at a crossroads with this colony, a time when it seems to many of you that the fabric of this empire is frayed. War in France, lawlessness on our streets. Let me say this, your sheriff feels your pain. And to those of you who would in your frustration lash out against the bulwark of this society, I say this, let us build and not destroy. Together, let us create a kinder and a gentler nation. But to those of you who would advocate violent revolution from below, let me say this, the monarchy will prevail. Law and order will be restored. God save the king. God save the king! Good morning, London. It is Thursday, November 20th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be and welcome to our show today, where 519-661-3600 is the number you can always call to reach us or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And today, our theme of the show is Politics is Personal. It's about me, myself, and I, and you, Robert. Me? <laughs> yeah, you. Uh, you know, Robert and I had a very exciting and interesting experience this past Saturday evening when we both appeared at Freedom Party's politics is personal dinner event at the Lamplighter on Wellington Road South in London. Robert was master of ceremonies and I was the event organizer and convener. The theme of the event was politics is personal and the evening was purposely completely devoid of policies, platforms or candidates for office. I've been politicked out lately especially after having been so personally involved in both the recent provincial election and municipal elections so the last thing I wanted to talk about was political promises in an electoral setting right Robert yes I came I'm up tired with myself of the whole thing <laughs> I came up with the idea for the dinner theme when I ran across a brief essay essay I wrote way back in 1988 called interestingly enough politics is personal and that essay, of course, became what we called an issue paper for the party at the time. I don't want to repeat what I wrote in that essay back then, because if anyone's interested, they can always find the issue paper on Freedom Party's archive online at www.freedomparty.on.ca. But for the event, I thought I would engage in a bit of an experiment. Without suggesting anything except the theme to our guest speakers, no restriction or content or comments, and please don't let me know in advance, I took a risk and invited three familiar voices to this radio show just right to give their personal perspectives on what it means to say politics is personal. Each has been a guest on this show many times, two have been co-hosts other than Robert, and all three have been Freedom Party candidates in the spring provincial election. And I'm speaking of Salim Mansour, Al Gretzky, and Paul McKeever. What an amazingly different perspective each of them had on the theme. 
and yet also amazingly consistent with each other and with the spirit of the event. And trust me, nobody who attended the event said they were bored, not even my mother, who was thoroughly impressed, because she's a, she's a tough critic, let me tell you. <laughs> so Robert and I thought we would share some highlights of each of their presentations later on in the show today, but be cautioned that what you'll be hearing today is just a small sampling of their entire comments. We also thought we might use this broadcast of Just Right to offer our own sampling of perspectives on the theme of politics is personal, because although both of us spoke at the event, we weren't really the star attractions and didn't speak directly to that theme. So 96.7% all original material today, exclusive to Just Right, you'll be able to see the entire event uncut and unedited on YouTube in the coming weeks ahead. But first, allow me to offer my very new and perhaps bizarre perspective on this theme. I, I hadn't discussed this with you yet, Robert, so I'm going to ask you to play along with this. Okay. Um, I had an epiphany last evening, Robert, after we spoke about what we might possibly cover on today's show. I recall mentioning to you a bit in jest that my working title for my politics as personal comments was, as I said, me, myself, and I, and you. I really had no idea whatever I could do with that, but I often start with the first thing that pops into my mind for whatever reason and start from there. You know, be a pencil, not an eraser approach, right? Sure, yeah. And then it hit me. So I hope you'll be able to play along with my initial rambling musings here because it does all come together and hopefully lead to a point or at least to some, some kind of conclusion. This is still a work in process. And, you know, when it comes to me, myself, and I, we get along quite well with each other. <laughs> <laughs> and there really are three of us, at least until we have to deal with you. <laughs> okay. Me? You, yeah, you. Or any you. It's the, it's the, the generic you. I know we don't always get along. <laughs> Precisely. You know, even having just to deal with one other person besides me, myself, and I changes all parameters. It's difficult enough, for example, for a married couple to get along, or even just Robert and I when we're working together on various projects or efforts. We act like a married couple oh, sometimes. I tell you, yeah. The compromises, the expectations. The shouting, the yeah, bloodshed. The misunderstandings, <laughs> the debates and arguments, the indecisions and decisions, who gets the credit or the blame for anything that might result. So imagine how much more difficult social relationships get when there are more than two people involved. You know, three, five, ten, a hundred, a thousand, a million, a billion. Suddenly you're involved in politics and the compromises, expectations, misunderstandings, debates, and arguments begin to fly in as many directions as there are people. So, me, myself, and I. These are three expressions of the personal. You know, in some highly collectivized societies, they don't even have a word or concept for the personal because individuality is an unheard of concept. If these collectives are primitive Stone Age cultures, then it could be said they are still living in the Garden of Eden, unaware they have individual identities with a free will. If these collectives are modern-day fascist, communist, or socialist dictatorships, then these people are not in a Garden of Eden, but in a hell on earth, even though they too might be unaware of any other way of existence. But knowledge destroys ignorance. And that's why Adam and Eve walked out of the Garden of Eden after having eaten the fruit from the Tree of Knowledge. They now had the power to understand when they were behaving good or evil and why. And they were now capable of evil. They became moral agents and were finally capable of having a self that required a moral code to sustain. But back to me, myself, and I, because like everyone listening to this show, I'm just naturally selfish because 
That's normal and healthy. As the three expressions of the personal, the words me, myself, and I are the holy trinity of the individual and represent three distinct aspects of the single individual. The me is the object. The myself is the subject. The I is the agent. Three distinct and differentiated modes of the single individual, like a trinity of the individual. An object, as we know, is acted upon. Something or someone can do something to me, not to I. That's why people in the sex trade are often referred to as sex objects, because that's precisely the role they're playing, though one would hope or assume that they chose that role as an agent. The agent is not acted upon, but is the actor. Hence, its association with the word I. I do. I will. I shall take action. Or not. Because it's really about choice, and to not take action is also a choice that belongs to the free agent, the I. Then there's myself, the subject. That's the part of oneself that has to be known to be fully appreciated or apprehended beyond the action around me. Some might regard this part of one's true identity or the spirit or the self, which accounts for the word myself. I've never thought of this before in this way, actually. But once exposed to other people who are also being naturally selfish, we enter the social realm and with it the realm of politics. All of those me, myself, and I's running around, you know, and running into each other in their shared social matrix of interaction. Some acting, some being acted upon, and in so doing, consciously or not, they become political. The politics can remain on a personal level. Office politics, for example, crony politics, social politics, or other applications that don't necessarily or likely involve government. And it suddenly strikes me that when I hear the word politics in this context, I can't help but think that politics means like playing favorites, by bestowing unearned rewards upon some and not on others, or denying earned rewards to those who earned them by giving them to those who didn't. That's what people say when, oh, well, it's just office politics or it's just politics. Politics in this sense is a process of inclusion and exclusion, us and them, and it generally has a sense of unfairness about it, if you really think about it. Now, government, on the other hand, is supposed to be all about fairness, justice, equality, before and under the law. So what happens when this kind of politics meets government? Government becomes politicized, eventually to the point where it ceases to become government at all. If you think about it, government affects everything in our lives today, work, career, family, sex, food and drugs, art and entertainment, TV, movies, technology, communication, science, religion, healthcare, education, energy, you name it. All of these fields are intricately and intimately affected by politics and by government. And at the motivational root, it's all personal. But at the active surface, it's all very impersonal. Now, everyone has a self. No one can rob them of that core identity which is essentially stored in the mind and character of each individual. But in politics, the question is, are you a me or are you an I? The me's let things happen to them. The I's make things happen. Politics is primarily for the I's who make things happen, and then as the old saying goes, well, you know, everything happens to me because me just sits there. So if you're a person who isn't interested in politics, who's completely involved with and absorbed by your personal life, 
who doesn't understand or doesn't care what's going on in the political world, you, more than anyone else, will suffer the severest shock and startling effects of not having the right to your personal life should it suddenly or slowly end in the political arena. Because that's the direction our politics is heading today. If you have one now, a personal life that is, don't ever take it for granted because that might not always be the case. The trick is, as I would phrase it in my own context, to become selfish enough to occasionally transcend one's personal interests in life for the public one and to learn and discover what a truly free democracy and free society is all about and why a liberal democracy is an ideal worth defending. Life, liberty, and property are the means of bringing the personal into the public arena. We know this to be true in both theory and practice, so let's get on with it. Who's looking after me, myself, and I when it comes to you? Now, to emphasize the point, or any, any comments on that so far, Robert? No, Is totally it, agree. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Every, you know, I remember we talked about this last night, and I re didn't really think I'd be running with that theme. It was just a working concept. But now to emphasize the point and to change the perspective entirely, perhaps the following comments by Salim Mansour, as he stated them on Saturday evening, may make clear the true significance of living in and preserving our miraculous liberal democracy, which is the only form of governance that makes even having a personal life possible. So let's listen in to Salim Mansour. What is it? And why is it that we find ourselves in such a despairing situation as we do, if we are honest about it, in the country that we are today? Uh, this is two weeks since things that have happened in Ottawa and Montreal. Not even six months from the election. And we see the dark clouds around us. And we have to ask, why is it? And, and I think my own sense of it, and I want to share the few minutes that I have uh, with you, my own rumination about it, is because we have lost the sense of our core values. And we have to find ways to get them back. So when Bob said to me that, Salim, would you, would you speak tonight, to say a few words to us? And I asked him, Bob, what do you want me to say? I did not know what the theme was, and, and, and Bob said, well, talk about politics as personal, that's the theme of the night, and then I got in my mail, the slip of paper that came down, politics is personal. So I began to mull about it, what it is about politics is personal? And the first thing that struck me is that the theme of the night, politics is personal, is paradoxical. There's a deep paradox over here, and I don't want to ruminate and be become philosophical, but I think at times it is necessary in, pu in public space to reflect philosophically on the situation, both in terms of our commitments to public life, engagement in public life, and as the team is, politics is personal, and to reflect in some ways in a philosophical manner. And so I say it is paradoxical because the issue is to what extent can or should or must politics be personal and to what extent then 
can personal be political? In other words, politics is always about, or should be about, and of course the given here is, it's in a liberal democracy, is about public affairs, it's about good society, it is about what takes place in the public square. And everything that is takes place in the public square is not necessarily personal and should not be personal, especially in a liberal democracy. Because the flip side of liberal democracy going left to the extreme, which is totalitarian, there's nothing personal. You breathe, you sneeze, you eat. What books you read, what church you go to, there is a church or a mosque or a temple. What you share with your children, your friends, everything is political. This is something that those who haven't had a window into the world that is outside of liberal democracy is hard to understand. Those of us like me who come from backgrounds which were not liberal democracy, there, there is nothing personal. And so that's the paradox. <clears throat> to be personal or to have something personal is to maintain what is only in liberal democracy po possible is to maintain one's sovereignty. I am, as an individual, and this has been the long political battle over 500 years that we have come to in, in, in the West. The fight for the individual as sovereign. That the individual is not a means to anybody's end, but he is an end in himself or herself. Historically, in a liberal democracy, the personal as sovereign was a very guarded phenomenon. What was political was what did the person do that mattered in public life and what he would bring to public life, he or she. What I'm pointing out here is the personal was connected to public service. The personal was not something celebrity. Babe Ruth would not run for presidency or he would not run for any office. He was the best baseball player, but that's what it was. The same thing you can map in Canadian politics until the phenomena comes to Pierre Elliott Trudeau. That every prime minister and every leader in the country was engaged in some way of public service that brought him into the notice of the people and then came the call to serve the people. We have lost that sense of it. And so consequently, our members in our legislatures, in our House of Commons, and our leaders do not come 
with that integrity of public service having been done, where their merits have been judged by the people, to be then elected to the office to be re the representative of the people. And the classic case is the case of Obama now. The man had no record and was lifted to the position of the highest office in the most powerful country in the world on the basis of his DNA and nothing else. And there we are where we are today. In London North Center, not that you know, we expected or I had any illusion that we could win the seat, but what was so appalling was that our representative from London North Center had neither any service before she became a member of the legislature from London North Center, and then the record and the duration of her office completely and thoroughly disqualified her, and yet she won a thumping victory and went back to represent London North Center. How do we correct the situation? You know, I don't know. There is no silver bullet out there. I have no idea. But we have a tremendous weight upon ourselves as a country and as a people that if we don't correct it, if we don't bite the bullet, if we're not honest with ourselves, then we will lose the shreds of our own individual sovereignty. Much of it has already been lost and will be further lost. That's true, but we must remember that the kingdom of Moronica is at peace, Mr. Ixnay. You're right, Mr. Amsgray. But there's no money in peace. No. We must start a war. Right. And if the king wants only peace, then we must oust him and appoint a dictator. That's it, a dictator. Exactly. We must find someone who is stupid enough to do what we tell him. Oh, but where can we find anyone that's stupid, Mr. Olney? I've got the very man, and he's in this house right now. His name is Mo Hailstone. He and his two helpers are papering my dining room. A paper, a paper hanger? hanger? Why not? <laughs> that's, uh, that was from an old Three Stooges episode, that little clip at the end there, uh, where, of course, they were referring to Adolf. <laughs> <laughs> you know, being the paper hanger and that he was just selected out of the blue, which is sort of how a lot of people are thinking. Well, why not? I mean, you have Obama who was, what What did he ever do? Well, that's An exactly activist. what Salim was saying, right? Yeah. And he was contrasting him um, with other presidents like John F. Kennedy hmm. and Eisenhower who had brought with them a public persona before, public they, service, ran, yeah. before they ran, you know, for office. Now, which brings us to this next interesting point, because something happened in the free press just on the Friday before our event. Uh, you know, one of the first ways I began to uh, express my own personal opinions in public arena was on radio talk shows, the first one being none other than the Bill Brady show way back in the 70s on CFPL at the time. The calls weren't live. They were pre-recorded and then played later in the show. It was like writing a letter to the editor and hoping it would be published later, yeah, right? Yeah. It was interesting. And, uh, but Bill Brady rarely, if ever, writes about politics in his free press column, so you can imagine my surprise, not only at the subject matter of his weekend column on Friday, but at the timing of it. It appeared on the day before the Politics' personal dinner event, and how fascinating that he should say almost exactly what we just heard Salim Mansour saying. And I have to, this is something he wrote on November 14th. This is Bill Brady. The headline read, Liberals Once Chose Me, 
or, well, anyone would do, really. <laughs> okay. And he writes about how he got to be thinking about the life of a politician, and he says he believes it's a difficult job, especially in municipal office. It must be a time of great emotional swings. And he goes, over the years during my working life, it was suggested several times that I seek public office. I was told I'd be a shoo-in, a well-meaning, you know, well-meaning friends and colleagues, as they put it, you're a well-known public figure. And he says, no kidding. While always interested in politics, I did not have a desire to get involved as a candidate, he writes, rationali rationalizing that there are ways to serve one city and country without getting elected. Besides, given my ego, I found the chance of losing not a very attractive prospect. And besides that, I wanted to start at the top, and that wasn't going to happen because we already had a prime minister, and no, it wasn't Robert Borden. I'd been on the air at CFPL for just a few years, having been hired by the late Ward Cornell, he writes, later of Hockey Night in Canada fame. He was primarily the general manager of the radio stations, but spent a great deal of time doing the CBC TV thing. He rescued me from Toronto Radio, and I went on air as the afternoon lively guy. The name, the notion of a bewildered promotion, promotional person. Life was good, and I worked with very talented broadcasters. Our station then was the market leader. While there was plenty of traffic in our reception area, no one ever came to the station to see me, so I was surprised when the magical receptionist Donna, later to be appropriately dubbed Vice President of First Impressions, called to say I had a visitor. Waiting was a man on a mission. He said it was, he was, very, or it was very confidential and asked if we could go to my office. I smiled and admitted I had no office, but we could find a quiet corner. When we did, he told me that I was not to mention this to anyone since it was such a sensitive matter. I was intrigued and a bit apprehensive. I'm here to tell you our group has unanimously selected you to be the liberal candidate in the next election, he said. I was stunned. For starters, I did not live in the riding mentioned, and I knew that there already was a sitting liberal member of parliament who had been in the office for some time. The messenger again cautioned me about the sensitivity of what he was about to tell me. Their member was about to retire and I'd make a perfect replacement. Not once did he ask if I was a liberal or whether I knew anything <laughs> about government, implying that he and his pals would be there to tell me what to do. That pronouncement turned me off the matter entirely, and I said so. He then played his biggest card. Prime Minister Trudeau would like you to come to Ottawa so he can thank, talk to you about being a, our candidate. I was a little flattered, but I thought a meeting with the PM was unlikely. I made it clear that it honored as I was, I did not want to be, quote, their man in Ottawa. I listened to all his arguments, which were not very convincing, and finally got through to him and once more vigorously declined. His parting line has stayed with me all these years and put the whole episode in perspective, giving my ego a devastating blow. Yet it was all too bizarre and funny to do anything but benignly smile. His closing question? Well, I'm sorry you feel that way, but do you happen to know anyone else who might be interested in running? <laughs> I didn't. The sincere and zealous man took his leave, and I could hardly wait to tell anyone who would listen about how I almost made it to the hill. Isn't that an amazing essay, Robert? That is truly amazing, yes. And so Bill Brady, in writing this essay, has essentially illustrated the very point that was being made by Salim Mansour. The people we currently elect haven't earned their support in the sense of being statesmen or w and women or even knowing about the parties that they're running for. And so you can see the, the, the problem we have in politics today. Um, 
and again, as we mentioned before, you know, when, when Mansur criticized Obama, he was contrasting him against previous presidents who did bring that kind of an accomplishment with him before running for the highest office in the land. Coming up next, both on this side of our break and when we return on the other side, will be the voice of Al Gretzky, whose take on what it means to say politics is personal is about as personal as it gets. Now, the invitation for tonight clearly stated that the speakers would speak from a personal point of view and not political. Bob, where are you, Bob? There's Bob. Bob, as Desi used to say to Lucy, let me explain. <laughs> you ask me to speak, you give me a lectern, you give me a microphone, and you give me a fantastic audience of people to talk to, and then you tell me I can't talk politics. <laughs> politics. It's the only thing that a guy at 73 can get passionate about without a little blue pill. <laughs> you might just as well feed marbles to chickens and hope they lay bowling balls. Now, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to compromise here. I'm going to give you my personal report on my political memories of the 2014 election. Is that fair? That's fair. Okay. Now, I had some good days and I've had some bad days in politics, but June the 3rd, 13th, after that election, worst day ever. Not because I lost, again. It was because I'm a big boy. I wear big boy pants. It was the insult to injury that occurred afterwards. And here is my woeful little tale. Elections leave you with memories. And the debate left me with three of them. One high point, one low point, and one regret. Now the regret happened at a church debate. And the question was, do any of you have a criminal record? And like dutiful little lambs at the church, we all chuckled and we all said no. Now to this day, I am, to put it politely, tinkled off at myself for not having said what came to my mind right off the bat. Do you have a criminal record? No, sir, I've never been elected. <laughs> Now, there was this little ray of sunshine, and that, of course, was my daughter-in-law, her victory in Windsor. And it came with perks even for me. I got an invitation to go to Queen's Park and watch the swearing-in ceremony live. And for a political junkie, that's a good thing. So on July the 2nd, off we went to Toronto, and I was excited to be there, even though it was just in the gallery because I had, well, sort of a dog in the fight. My daughter-in-law was down in there. And it was a memorable event, not just because we were there, but out of the clear blue, it afforded me one more opportunity to rage against the machine and to stand up against injustice right there in the gallery at Queen's Park. 
When Lieutenant Governor Onley finished reading the speech from the throne, like little lemmings, everyone rose and everyone applauded, except Marilyn and I. I sat there and Marilyn supported me, standing, no, sitting there with me, because there was no way that I could stand for that piece of um, fertilizer. So picture, if you will, the whole house is standing and applauding. And there's these two old codgers seated in protest. Now I glanced down at my daughter-in-law, and she's down there shaking her finger at me, shaking her head, and she's smiling, but at least she was smiling. That was more than any of the liberals that were sitting around me were doing when they saw my protest. Now, finally this thought. I came away from that election honored that as many people supported me as did, I was grateful. Grateful to all the people who worked with me to move our ideas forward, and I was proud. Proud to be in a land where no matter what your station in life, you can take part in the greatest gift of all given to us by the so many who paid the ultimate price, and that gift is freedom. Freedom to gather, freedom to gather, and freedom to openly, honestly, and more important, safely stand and have our voices heard. Thank you. You know, it's always a treat to listen to Al and his comedy. That, that was a powerful observation he made there, having been in, you know, yes. in Queen's Park and just, just protesting without anybody taking a gun and shooting them. <laughs> you know, you know I, I did that once, um, protest by, by not rising. When I was on the Board of Education, uh, there was an outgoing chairman, chairperson, and um, I knew from behind the scenes that she did not deserve any standing ovation. Mm -hmm. Glad to get rid of her. But the gallery was full, and everybody gave speeches, and she uh, gave her last speech, and everybody stood up and gave her a rounding standing ovation, and I just sat there. No way was I going to be a lemming and give her credence when I knew Ma making you yourself the social pariah there, eh? <laughs> well, I was already that. Yeah, I know, coming into it. <laughs> but uh, Al and Salim had great topics, and it was a great, uh, great evening. Listen to all those speeches, and we still have Paul McKeever yet to go. Uh, politics is personal in that everyone, from the cradle to the grave, is affected by it, and yet politics as a process is increasingly becoming impersonal. There's a very large percentage of the population who live day to day and year to year without giving a second thought about politics, even though every decision by government has an effect on their lives. We've all seen or heard about the surveys which reveal that many of us don't know the name of our political leaders, mayors, premiers, even prime ministers or presidents. In general, we have very little knowledge of the policies or platforms of the major political parties beyond some vague generalities. Ironically, politics is becoming depersonalized, even though it is personal. I say ironically because the word politics derives from the Greek meaning citizen, i.e. you and me, mm -hmm. or me, myself, and I, and you. Yeah. Politics is all about people. Politics is personal. 
or at least it should be. It's becoming increasingly difficult to blame a single politician for his actions. Laws are enacted not by a person, but by a parliament or the legislature or the council, usually on the advice of a committee or a focus group or a department. Each committee, focus group or department being made up of several nameless individuals. Even if you know the name of the chairman of the committee and try to lay blame for a decision of that committee on him, his usual reply was that the decision was made by the committee as a whole, and he is only voicing the will of the committee. Blame or praise has been deflected away from an individual and towards the group. We just experienced two elections this year, one provincial and one municipal. If you are to ask the man on the street how any particular member of the provincial legislature or city council voted on any particular issue, you'll undoubtedly get the response of, I don't know. Votes in all legislatures and councils are almost always by either a shout of yeas or nays or by a showing of hands. Rarely are votes recorded. You know, before I became a trustee on the school board, it was actually quite comical to witness a vote at that board. It usually went like this. All in favor, opposed, carried. Just as quick as that. And no one was recording the vote or no, anything? No, no, votes were not recorded. And when I became a trustee, I would, with every important decision of the board, for example, a budget or a school closing or anything like that, ask for a recorded vote. It was uh, simply, a, it simply took a call of division. You know, you'd shout out the word division and then they'd have to st- the uh, secretary was compelled by the rules to ask every trustee how they voted and the results appeared in the minutes for those who cared to look it up it know, was a, a, an attempt at being accountable of being able to yeah. put a name and a face to a personal decision which affected the lives of ratepayers I, I mean how can the voters possibly know who to vote for or who to support if they aren't even capable of discerning that particular candidate's record of voting and record of action separate from the committee or group of which he is part that was that was a part of the reason I did it. I disagreed with 90% of the decisions of the public school board. And I did not want me, my friends, my family, the, the people who supported me and elected me, to know that I, as a member of that board, supported the decisions of the board. I wanted the people to know where I stood. Right. Not the board. You know, not the collective, not the group. I wanted to know where the individuals stood so well, that they could for either vote for me or not. <laughs> yeah, well, I got reelected, yeah, And very handily, twice. Yeah, sir, city, citywide, too. Mm. So that was, that was all right. Elections are another example, however, of, of how impersonal politics can be. Nobody is to blame for the government we get because their election was the will of the faceless mob. I'm not suggesting, of course, that our governments be formed by any other method. <laughs> But uh, it's an example of passing the buck, of allowing other people to make choices over your life. There is the tired old saying that if you don't vote, you shouldn't complain about the government you get. But it's exactly the other way around, as uh, I think you may have said Mm -hmm. before on another show, Bob. It's exactly the people who don't vote who have every right to complain about the decisions others have made regarding him. But who who, who do you complain to? Your neighbor? I guess so you could. But how did he vote? How do you know? If he tells you he voted for the party in power, he can simply say that he didn't expect the government to act that way. Or, and so there's no blood on his hands. Referenda are another example of disconnecting the people from the decision-making. 
Who do you blame for a decision resulting from a referendum? Everyone and no one. The politicians say that it wasn't their decision, it was the decision of the people. But who formed the question on the referendum, and who decided to have a referendum at all? Remember the vaguely worded question of the Quebec referendum in 1980, Bob? Oh, yes. The Charlottetown Accord? Uh, No, no, that was the Quebec referendum on uh, sovereignty association. Well, they were all like that. Yeah. Every referendum. Well, I've got it here. Oh, you do? I'll I'll read it out to you and just just see see whether or not you'd vote yay or nay or what it means and um, whether or not it's actually clear. Quote, the government of Quebec has made public its proposal to negotiate a new agreement with the rest of Canada based on the equality of nations. This agreement would enable Quebec... Remember now, this is a referendum question. (laughs) Yeah. This agreement would enable Quebec to acquire the exclusive power to make its laws, levy its taxes, and establish relations abroad. In other words, sovereignty. And at the same time, to maintain within Canada an economic association including a common currency... Any change in political status resulting from these negotiations will only be implemented with proper government approval through another referendum. On these terms, do you give the government of Quebec the mandate to negotiate the proposed agreement between Quebec and Canada? I mean, the question is, should Quebec secede from Canada? No, it's not that. That would have been too easy. The question as posed allowed anyone from separatist to Canadian patriot to vote yes and still justify his personal choice. I mean, after all, it was only a a question to ask to negotiate. To negotiate what? Some nebulous terms that they're talking about here. It's interesting, too, that they use the the word sovereignty, the sovereignty of the state, as opposed to what Salim Mansour was talking about, the sovereignty sovereignty of the the individual. Yes, the individual, yeah. So, I mean, is is that those kinds of things, elections... Uh, committees, referenda, which depersonalizes politics, something that is by its very nature, by the very root of the word politic, politicos, very personal. It's all about the citizens. It's all about me, myself, I, and you. And yet we end up with some nebulous decisions made by some faceless bureaucrats thousands of miles away in some cases, and um, I think that's that's not a, a good thing for the future of Canada. The great we instead of the I. Yeah. Maybe that's why in Quebec they say we, we. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we've heard from Al Gretzky. We've heard from Salim and Sir. The other speaker that evening was Paul McKeever. And Paul had his own particular take on personal uh, Yes, he was asking. Politics. He was, he was, you know, broaching that issue that we hear so often among conservatives, libertarians, and freedom-loving people, and he asked the question, is government a gun? And that's the, the issue that he deals with coming up here. What I find most striking is the extent to which many in society have tried to hide the fact that politics is personal. They hide its personal nature by things such things as the division of governmental powers, They try to hide it in elections, and they try to hide it in political parties. It's sometimes said by lovers of freedom that government is a gun or that it's like a gun. The response to that claim sometimes takes the form of scoffing or laughter. Don't be so melodramatic, say some. That's just hyperbola, say others. But is it true? Is government a gun. None of this implies that there should not be laws. Nobody should be free to murder, to rape, to steal 
from one's neighbors. The point is that many people want to deny that the government is a gun when it comes to certain laws that actually violate rights of life and liberty and property, like those tax laws. There's a denial that the government's a gun when it comes to those kinds of laws. So the question is, what kinds of laws should there be? And that's where elections come in. And here again, we find a general tendency to ignore or hide the fact that politics is personal. Why are they so quiet? They scream for justice, and when you give it to them, they're suddenly bored. Like an audience at a cheap burlesque, the entertainment must be varied. Every five minutes must be a costume change. But I know them very well. You fill their stomachs and you empty their brains. They have cheap taste and short memories. What's the matter, Tabal? Is there something that's sitting heavy on you? Government, as I said, is a gun. And he who holds the gun decides where it will be pointed and when its trigger will be pulled. In the days of old, disputes over where the gun would be pointed were resolved by ways of you know, shows, showings of force. Strong men would take the leads of tribes, and the tribes of loyal followers of those strong men would fight it out until one of the tribes prevailed over some geographic area. The strong man, a king, told his tribesmen when and where and how to point the gun. And having led his tribe to victory, he removed himself from the appearance of using guns and let his loyal tribesmen do the dirty work. Over time, those who produced the wealth with which the king paid his soldiers demanded a say in where the gun was pointed. The king fearful that he'd lose the money that he needed to pay those soldiers and to keep them loyal, agreed ultimately to let those wealthy, usually landowners, have a say in what laws were made. Like the king, these lawmakers could keep their hands clean and leave the king's men, the gunmen, to pull the trigger and do the bloody, dirty, uh, bloody and dirty work for them. The king now also had the luxury of not being blamed for any law that the wealthy land, er, lawmakers were making. He was merely a beloved figurehead. Over time, the general public demanded a say in what laws got made. A system of elections was created. The government could elect from among themselves a number of agents who would, for a limited amount of time, exercise the public's power to make laws. Like the king and the wealthy lawmakers of old, the electorate and their elected agents could keep their hands clean and leave to the police the bloody business of pulling the trigger of the government's gun. And that brings us to today. And of course, today, the gunmen, the triggermen in Ontario are the liberals. And uh, make no mistake, Paul McKeever actually went on in that speech to give a very good example of how every single law, no matter how trivial it may seem to you, is backed up by a bullet. It's backed up by a gun. It has to be, or otherwise 
it would, there would be no effect of law, would there? No, and you know some, and and if the laws were just, I'd have no problem with that. Correct. But when laws are unjust, that becomes a problem. How is it that a party like the Ontario Liberals can get reelected, considering how corrupt their politicians? Are and how damaging their policies have been in this province. How is it that a man like Barack Obama can be elected to a second term as president? I mean, I can understand maybe the first, but a second term, given his destructive policies during his first term? No easy answers, but I think part of the answer may lie in the way we think about ourselves. Only a minority of us, I think, can relate to what Salim Mansur called the sovereign individual. Only a minority of us can isolate the man from the mob, the individual from the collective, the I from the we. You know, I'm not a Freudian. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a Freudian. But Sigmund Freud did invent and come up with a number of terms which I find useful in describing people's actions and beliefs. To use the Freudian terms in the context of this discussion, a sovereign individual is one who can take control of his superego, those internalized cultural rules and norms learned from one's parents and teachers, and is one whose ego, or sense of self, and superego are not in conflict with each other or with reality. As an example of a person with no personal sovereignty, I'll choose a member of the Islamic State, ISIS, ISIL, whatever they want to call themselves. That kind of a person is a person who acts without ego, a person whose actions are solely based on cultural expectations, not personal ideals, a person who's, who cannot control his id, another Freudian term describing that unorganized part of the personality structure that contains a human's basic instinctive drives, like sex. We identify others by the groups they belong to. We take them into consideration, their religion, their race, their ethnicity, their nationality, their ancestors, their favorite sports team. We often identify ourselves using the same criteria. While it certainly isn't necessarily wrong to feel affection for one's own country or to root, root, root for the home team, such associations are usually accidents of birth and the culture one is born into. Why root for the Maple Leafs, for example, just because you're from Toronto? They're probably the worst team in the league. Why be a proud Canadian? The only reason you're here is probably because you were born here. If you were born in Mexico or Gambia, you'd probably be a proud Mexican or Gambian. Why? Why are you a Catholic? Why are you a Muslim? The answer is usually because my parents were. And that's the way they brought me up. Your religion is most often a construct of your superego, as are all of those other group identities. A true sovereign individual knows why he is and why he is what he is. A true sovereign individual doesn't give weight to ancestry or race or ethnicity or any other factor beyond his own control and choice. A sovereign individual is self-made. He plans his path in life and acts upon that plan, making choices along the way. A sovereign individual is one of ego. I remember Ayn Rand wrote a book called Anthem. Mm -hmm. 
and the whole notion of that, and you actually alluded to it, saying that in a totalitarian regime, sometimes you don't even have words for what we would call I or me, myself, Correct. and I, and all that. And that, in this particular book that she wrote to give away the ending, the word that didn't exist was ego. You know, politics affects the sovereign individual by either restricting his choices or protecting his freedom to choose. If the politicians protect his freedom of choice, then his sovereignty is protected. If the politician restricts his choices or punishes him for his choices, then his sovereignty is under attack. And it's people like Salim Mansur, Al Gretzky, and Paul McKeever who can identify when their personal sovereignty is under attack and act to repel that attack. They are people of ego who know right from wrong, not simply because of what they may have been told by their parents or teachers, but because they've developed their code of conduct based on reason and fit their behavior to live peacefully with other peaceful people, their neighbors, their fellow citizens, their body politic. That's why politics is personal and should remain so. Very good, Robert. You know, I guess when it comes to the Freudian connection and politics, we should all be very, very afraid. Oh, Bob, jeez. <laughs> Anyways. Leave him yeah. laughing. Is that your, yeah, your credo? Yeah, that's <laughs> for this week. On behalf of me, myself, and I, and Robert, that's it for today's show. Be, tu- be sure to tune in for more next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright So, anything else planned for tonight? Oh, everything. Getting our picture taken, slow dancing, being elected prom king. (laughs) Pointing out that kings aren't elected. (laughs) Gonna be off the hook. (laughs) 